Welcome to another episode of the Main Break Podcast, the Standards, Standards Weekly Sports Podcast. It's Brian Allen here with fellow sports journalist Justine McCullabeasy. It's not too often you hear of an academic playing football, but Clorinurit's Nick Marshall is doing just that. And he won the AFL Victoria Country Medal as best on ground in the 29 Warrnambool and District League Grand Final. Now he's achieved something major off-field. The Victorian University student just graduated after completing his thesis titled A Cultural History of Australian Rules Football in Regional Southwest Victoria During the Interwar Years. Nick explores the complexity of football in the Southwest during the 1920s and 30s. We learn of characters from that era, how football was written about, and why it might have been written in a certain way. And we also learn about Australia's role models of the time. We've got Nick to talk us through some of those themes and about his experience writing the thesis. Welcome, Nick. G'day, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries at all. Um, and how are you, Justine? Yeah, going well, thanks, guys. Looking forward to hearing about Nick's, Nick's journey. It's obviously been a lot of hard work to get to this point, so, yeah, looking forward to hearing how it all came about. And Nick, we, we have to go from the top here. It's, um, it's something I touched on in probably that grand final last year, but um, do you know of any other current footballers who would, Southwest footballers, who would have completed their PhD? Uh, I'm not familiar with any at the moment. I'm not sure it's a, yeah, as you say, it's not a very common, common pathway for yeah, local footballers to tread down, but um, no, you certainly don't know, encourage people to do because it was yeah certainly one of the best things that I've done in my life so if anyone's out there wants some yeah advice I'm happy to happy to lend it yeah great and was there much interest as you were doing it I know I was at a lot of power games reporting last year um did any of the power guys any any of your teammates ask you about it or people around the club or the league yeah absolutely like had a lot of interest from um yeah people around the club and everyone was really encouraging of the, the whole process and it was sort of a bit, yeah, really interested in what, what I was doing and how it sort of came about and what it was sort of leading to and, yeah, I did my best to sort of explain the process of it and all and, um, yeah, try and delve into some of the key sort of themes that the thesis sort of touched on. And, yeah, but, yeah for the most part, everyone was really interested and encouraging and, yeah, yeah, everyone was really excited when I finally finished up the other, the other week. Mm. Um, Nick, one of the things you've done is send us through a photo of you in uh, your regalia. You had to graduate at uh, at home because of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, yeah. you're, at, you're at the Vic Uni, uh, and uh, you've done you you've sent us a photo of you and in your farm at uh, your parents' place. Yeah. Um, so can you talk us through that day of of graduation? And it was a different type of graduation. Yeah, it certainly was. Definitely. Um obviously sign of the times and very much a non-traditional sort of ceremony. It was um, broadcast um, from the EU and they had basically did the presentations and the, um, the speeches and all that sort of stuff on online and, yeah, we got to sort of sit at home and just watch the names roll past and it was certainly, yeah, that less traditional and maybe yeah, a little bit different but, um, yeah, got to at least Get, get the um, get my hands on the regalia and yeah, go and have a few photos out in the paddocks with mum and dad, which is nice. Now that you've graduated, Nick, what's the plan 
for you moving forward after completing the thesis? Like, what, where would you ultimately like to see your career go? Yeah, for sure. So there's there's a lot of different pathways that sort of uh, academia can sort of lead you lead you towards, and um, I suppose the whole point of doing a thesis is to sort of develop and create a bit of knowledge and contribute to a knowledge base that maybe hasn't been looked at in detail. So the sort of obvious pathways to stay in academia and state universities and um, shoot and lecture and um, yeah, keep developing research. So that's a sort of prominent pathway. Um, at this stage, history is um, a fairly, um, I suppose, competitive field, but and obviously not as a not as sought after or prominent these days. So there's less opportunities in the historical field, I would say. Um, but potentially, I can yeah apply a few of the skills that I've learnt to a whole spectrum of um, different sort of fields and industries. So it gives me a bit of a yeah open open field to play with, I think. And I noticed in your thesis, one of the, the subsections was about Colin Watson, who's obviously um, a Brownlow medalist at St Kilda in the 1920s and had a couple of stints there at the state, at the Saints uh, in between runs here at South Warrnambool. Um, yep. I guess he's always fascinated me as, as a player because he's come from this area and I guess seeing it's pretty much a century ago now, a lot of people wouldn't know much about him. Um but he's obviously a fantastic, was a fantastic player and left a, a big mark on the game. Uh, he's only yep. one of three Australian Hall of Fame members from the South West with uh, John Rantel and, and Jonathan Brown. So what did you learn about Colin when you were doing your, your thesis? So, yeah, Colin, um, Colin's a figure that is very prominent in terms of country football history and folklore in terms of um, he uh, created a bit of... Um, a stir, I suppose, because he was playing country football, but then obviously got um, taken to the state to the state competition, and he wanted to return to the country, and that sort of developed the the, the state league, the VFL at the time. Obviously, didn't really um, provide country players access to and from their community league, I suppose, and so it sort of um, spurred the initiation of the VCFL, his his case. So in terms of the creation of the VCFL, which is now uh, AFL Vic, um, his story is fairly important to that, that the formation of that um, that uh, organisation because it provided a bit of um, provided the the VCFL or provided country football a um, a sort of space to share their views on the state of the game in the state because at that stage, sort of the city controlled the game and um, dictated to the country how the game was sort of to be played and. Uh, sort of had, had their way with country football, I think, a little bit. So in terms of his um, influence on sort of uh, organisational change, he's a fairly prominent figure. And then, yeah, on a sort of more personal level, he was obviously admired as a, as a really prominent um, and exemplary footballer, both on and off the field, um, just the way he went about the game and his sort of attitude to the game and um, his tutelage of, the, of his players and coaches and um yeah, fellow coaches and colleagues. So yeah, definitely a important figure from down this way. Uh, yeah, so Nick, um, just to, I guess, give listeners a, a good context of, of the time period we're talking about. So um, the interwar years, uh, it was uh, a time that uh, I think the Hamden League just came in in 1930 
Uh, could you just give us a, a, a bit of an overview of some of the, the main things happening in Southwest football, um, I guess, in those 1920s and 30s? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, as you said, 1930 was the um, inauguration of the Hand Football League, which um, the, four, the four clubs initiated at Terrain, Mortlake, uh, Cobden and Campion, they were originally part of a league called the Western District uh, Football League which included clubs from Warnable, South Warnable, uh, and as far as uh, Hamilton. And so obviously back then, sort of times of depression, travel and that sort of thing was fairly difficult and fairly cumbersome um, sort of a task. So the Camden League was sort of formed out of the um, need to yeah, reduce that sort of travel time to allow sort of farmers and that sort of the opportunity to still play football, but then obviously maintain their, their work, work balance as well. So the Hand League yeah, initiated down the Terrain Wetship Hotel back in, uh, I think they had their first agent in 1929, and yeah, from there, their first inaugural season, 1930. Mm. And surrounding districts also had um, a lot of, there was a lot of surrounding district leagues, which back then were called Junior League, so um, Mount Merritt Football League started in I think, 1932, and there's also another, yeah, a variety of other leagues, like the Perham District League and... Um, Campdown Junior District League, which uh, sort of added to clubs around those areas. So they were, yeah, considered junior leagues. But, so those sort of smaller sort of places you don't really hear a lot about now, like sort of Bostock's Creek and uh, Scott's Creek and places like that that sort of wouldn't have sort of imagined them having football teams. But back then, every sort of little township had their own little town, had their own little team. So, yeah, Kalora had their own team, Mirror had their own team. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's definitely there's a yeah platform football being played at all different levels. Mm. And so that gives an idea of sort of the leagues happening. And then uh, you, with your research, uh, I know you've consulted um, you know a vast majority of sources, including I think over three thousand newspaper clippings. I noticed uh, there was I guess four main newspapers you used, and you also went to sources such as AFL Western District. Can you just tell us a little bit about that part of your journey of of where you went to get your information and that sort of thing? Yeah, for sure. So um, to get to collect the newspaper articles, I spent about six months at the State Library. The State Library has um, a has all newspapers on uh, microfilm, or, and if not, digitised. And so I was able to sort of spend time there basically trawling through microfilm um, and just collecting as many articles as I could that were related to football or that were important to the, the period of time that gave me a bit of a sense of what was going on in and around the district at the time. So as I said, yeah, I'd probably trawled through about 4,000 different issues of the Camden Chronicle, the Terrain Express, the White Dispatch and the Cobden Times, as well as um, other um, metropolitan newspapers as well, just to sort of filter what was going on outside of the district. And then, yeah, collected about 3,000 articles that I sort of sort of did a close reading of to yeah, get a sense of what was going on um, at a football level. Mm, and I know you thanked um, someone for uh, allowing you to have a quiet space in the Tarang Library uh, throughout the football season, every Friday of the football season? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah Mark McIntosh <laughs> at the Tarang Library. Um, yeah, she really looked after me. She, um, yeah, allowed me a little desk space in the, in the computer room where there was, yeah, there was a microfilm reader there as well that I could catch up on any other little bits and pieces I needed to. But yeah, Fridays, 
think as I, I, when I was travelling down, so I was travelling down on Thursdays to play football, and so I'd train on Thursday night with the team and then work from the library on the Friday, so it just gave me that, yeah, little quiet space to, yeah, get involved. Yeah, so you're based in Melbourne and, and then your uh, parents are based at a farm out this way? Yeah, yeah, so, you know, I was based, yeah, yeah, while I was studying, I was based in Melbourne um, in Fitzgrave, uh-huh. and then, yeah, travelled down on Thursday nights for training down to the farm at, down this way, down Coralway. Yeah, I was going to ask Nick, what was your, um, the biggest surprise, I guess, you came up with during this journey? Was there anything that you thought, oh, well, I, I didn't see that happening or anything like that? Um, certainly, I think just the way the project evolves. So initially, when I sort of did my first um, research proposal, the initial plan was just to sort of do a fairly conventional history of the head of football league. But then once you sort of start doing, once you start sort of digging and um, looking through the material and the um, data that you're collecting, these different themes just started emerging. So obviously one of the main themes that popped up was ideas and sort of masculinity that um, were really prominent and interesting to sort of delve into and the way, the other one was obviously the um, sort of post-war um, influence on the community as well. So just the way the the way the project evolved from a fairly conventional sort of social history to a more in-depth cultural history, I think, was the thing that sort of, yeah, most surprised me, I suppose, throughout the journey. And, Nick, I was very interested to read about that, uh, I guess, um, more so in the first half of your thesis. So, um, yeah, going to that topic um, of, of, I guess, the masculinity. So um, the, what really interested me was this idea of, Australian idols or role models. Um, so you you uh, sort of gave us a bit of a timeline of, of the different people that uh, that re- were representative of the ideal masculinity at the time, I suppose. So the late 19th century yep. was, was the man of the land or the bushman um, yep. who, you know, had, I guess, done well on the, on the land um, coming to Australia. And then... Uh, there was uh, the we had World War One and yeah. uh, we had Gallipoli. So then the soldiers were idolised for their uh, their bravery and and uh, those traits that we're so familiar with with Anzac Day. Yeah, and yeah, then sure. you you go on to tell tell us about the footballers and in the nineteen twenties and thirties. I guess when there was it was a time when people were waiting for what was the next sort of role model model of masculinity for society. So. How did you find, um, you know, exploring that timeline? Yeah, for sure. I think that was that was a really interesting part of the whole process was, um, yeah, discovering where these ideas of masculinity had sort of been generated from throughout Australian history. And I think following the war, the the soldiers had sort of come home as the sort of conquering heroes, I suppose, and they were presented as, as such. But then after a bit of time, they're their sort of presence as um, exemplary figures sort of fades a little bit. And I think you see how, you see how the stories about. So at the same time, you had players like Don Bradman in cricket who were becoming real role models. And um, the other example that pops up during the 1930s is the uh, sort of, sort of Bondi, Bondi lifesaver that become these sort of um, exemplars of Australian Australianness and, and um, a part of that Australianness is, is their sort of associated masculinity that is attached to that. And then at a local level, 
is certainly in the southwest. My sort of, um, I suppose, thesis was that football sort of became that sort of representative um, figure for for the region at a local level. Mm. And just explain to us those values that people admired in the footballers at the time. Yeah, sure. I think yeah. I think this is probably another really important part of it was about the idea that players weren't necessarily revered for what they did on the field, but how they did it, what the sort of spirit that they played in. So whether they played with um, not necessarily courage, but just the, the sportsmanship, and that they yeah exuded um, fair fair play, and that they did things. Um, yeah, within the rules and that they played played hard but played um, yeah, fairly and they were sort of um, yeah, revered for, for doing that rather than sort of the bashing crash sort of stuff that um, was prevalent sort of in the in the city at the time in that sort of professional league. Mm. Cause I think the, the thing that was probably in the country leagues was that it was a uh, amateur amateur competition so players weren't getting paid to play or anything so they were purely playing for purely the love of the game and um, yeah, playing just for, for fun rather than for sheep sessions, I suppose. The so I just wanted to go further on that, uh, Nick. So yeah, the the that was a big part of your thesis as well was this um, professionalism versus amateurism, um, yep. and that that created challenges um, for football in the southwest because, as I guess you explored, it wasn't just like as black and white as. Um, you know, playing without money that like there was complexity there, or there was grey about um, yeah. how the southwest would manage this idea that payers were getting paid in the cities. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I suppose um, at the time the only sort of draw card that country clubs had was that they could pay their coaches, but obviously no other no other players. So it was that's what players like the Colin Watson and like um, uh, Fitzmaurice, who I think who features in one of the chapters, was sort of being um, attracted to the country to, to coach coach and play because they could get paid for it. But the, the professionalisation of the game was even at that stage sort of becoming a prominent, um, prominent idea. So uh, obviously in the city, players are getting paid and not paid, paid, not paid well, mind you. They're probably, I think they're... There's a rule in place that only allowed them to be paid sort of three pounds per game. So really good quality players could could go to the country and get paid more money than a coach, but they couldn't get paid just to play in the country. Mm. So the and that's all that tension between the between the VFL and the Victorian Country Football League sort of exists as well because the transfer of players to and from those competitions was really troublesome and difficult to negotiate. And, obvious, and, yeah, the VFL had a lot of control in that space. Mm. I guess speaking, of, it's interesting to hear that even back then, we're talking, like, you know, 190, 80 years ago, that there was issues with um, payments back then. And I guess it's probably something that still goes on to this day in age. Um, I guess uh, country footy is still an amateur sport, but there's a lot of money involved now. Um, do you see any yeah. similarities there? Uh, in terms, yeah, similar. I think generally the way country football sort of um, was influenced by the VFL, I think is still fairly prominent. I think you see in today's football the game gets the game is getting more and more professional 
and local level because we're sort of mimicking what's happening at AFL level. I think there's a similar sort of relationship back then as well. So um, ideas about how the game was going to be played or how it's been played and little modifications that have occurred in the AFL have been translated into the country football league and there's a lot of, um, yeah, rebuffs and, um, again, some of the rule changes because they didn't really appear to the country, country form of the game. Um, but I think that's, yeah, again, that sort of tension that exists between the VFL and the country leagues at that time. Mm. I've got to note that about the holding the ball um, part of the thesis where I, it would seem so relevant to this year in the AFL, there was, um, so to paint the picture, that there was basically a rule change at, at the VFL level that filtered down to the country leagues here. The country leagues didn't like the the new holding the ball interpretation yeah. and then yeah. uh, they voiced their concerns and eventually the VFL decided to get rid of the the new interpretation. Did you find there was some irony in that? Yeah, I, I do. This, yeah, now that you mentioned I think that's, yeah, it's interesting, obviously, this year, um, there's a lot of controversy around that holding the ball rule. Um, and I think there would have been, yeah, I think similar sort of discussions back then as well. I think back then as well, probably country football supporters um, probably didn't see much of the VFL. They probably weren't engaged with the VFL as we are with the AFL these days. And so their country, their local team, so for, for example, the Mortlake supporters were following their Mortlake side more than, say, Geelong or something like that. So there was, yeah, I think that navigating those two things is also interesting. The wholesome image part of the thesis was interesting. There was, I guess, this, um, as newspaper reporters, it's interesting for us because there was kind of this... Uh, as you were explaining, a, a difference maybe between what the press was reporting about the game and maybe some of the complexity behind that. I think it's, it seemed like there was a desire to ex, uh, write about or, ex, or talk about a game that was um, wholesome and gentlemanly and um, yeah. played by good citizens. But I guess, yeah, in your piece you said... you. Yeah, they probably found that, but there were probably things beyond that as well that didn't get write, uh, written about. What did you make of all that? Yeah, no, I think it's, um, yeah, it's part of the way, especially back then, that you just had this operating, that they wanted to sort of cultivate stories that, um, yeah, promoted the sport, I think, in a way, because there was that associated um, uh, wholesomeness that, yeah, created, that the game created good, good, strong men of the community, I think. Um, and so... It was really interesting when we found um, things that sort of challenged that idea. So, obviously, when there was a bit of a fracas between Terang and Warwick back in 1929, the sort of commentary from the from the public, as well as the newspapers discussing the matter, I think really um, highlighted some of the um, sort of controversies associated with the sport that perhaps were not um, as widely discussed as. As, as the sort of wholesome and manly, the um, sporting side of it was sort of advertised. Because mm. I, th- I think that involved uh, Fitzmaurice, who you mentioned a little earlier in the yeah. chat, and he ended up getting suspended for four weeks. Is, am I right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was um, I think it was, he was reported by the, the Terrain Boundary Empire um, for collecting um, one of the Terrain players 
unfairly, but then yeah, the discussion in the newspapers from the from the uh, like public had sort of sent him letters to the editor to say that his actions weren't weren't that bad and that that they were sort of over overplayed by the by the Terang newspaper and I think even the fact that the two newspapers that were essentially twelve kilometres apart were sort of providing different opinions on the same same issue really highlighted the, the complexities of the different forms of sort of masculinity that were being celebrated or admired at the time. Now, Mr. Tibbles, I wanted to touch on this just <laughs> quickly because I found this quite funny and I think other people who will read this will too, but Mr. Tibbles, uh, for those listening, is like Jimmy Cricket sort of from Pinocchio, like looks like that. It's, it was yep. kind of a drawing, a stick figure drawing with the top hat, I think. And yep. um, Mr. Tibbles was uh, kind of a satire column of the paper. That, yeah, yeah. And he was supposed to represent kind of the city per the city person that was sort of yeah. um, watching country footy but being a bit perplexed by it. Um, can you tell us a bit about Mr. Tibbles? Yeah, so Mr. Tibbles was a, another just a really odd find that we that we collected along the journey. He only features, I think, in nineteen thirty and nineteen thirty one, and then sort of disappears into obscurity. But essentially, he provided a really interesting um, presentation of, or representation of how yeah, city folk are represented in a rural space. And so that was really interesting to see sort of that they were, I suppose, um, yeah, seen as a little bit uh, out there and not not sort of um, following the traditions of the sort of country lifestyle. So his... his um, and he sort of also provides like insight into sort of some of the other things that were happening behind the scenes at a country football level, so like a little bit of the gambling and stuff that was sort of taking place that I wasn't really aware of. But yeah, these are sort of obviously they're sort of satirical um, articles, but there's probably probably some sort of form of truth attached to them mm. that tells a story about what sort of the happenings of a of a country football game. Yeah, so. He was one of the characters that kind of provided these this col- these interesting columns for you. And then there was another character, Old Eaglehawk. Um, yep. And he had a different uh, purpose, I guess, for your uh, thesis. So that uh, Old Eaglehawk um, was, I guess, devoted to... or had a yearning for the past. Like he, used, yep. he sounded like he used to reflect on the late 19th century, so the 1800s and football then and maybe yep. how masculinity was back then and he yep. also provided um insight for you into uh indigenous australians and how they were talked about and treated at the time um yeah. in the area um could you tell us a bit about old Eaglehawk? yeah so again old Eaglehawk was a character we found um fairly early on and it was interesting his sort of nostalgic reflections on how football used to be played so even even in the 1930s people were sort of talking about how football was better back in back in his day, or that sort of thing. So, in that ter- that terms of nostalgic reflection, I think is really interesting from his um, uh, stories. But then, yeah, as you said, um, he also reflects on things outside the football realm, and in terms of um, how Indigenous Australians were treated back then, is really revealing and connecting their experiences in a football context as well. 
I think provides a little bit of insight into yeah how they were expected to behave and how they were treated by yeah uh, white settlers at the time is yeah again fairly revealing of Australian history I think which is pretty important. Yeah, and um, what was just one example of from the thesis you you gave there of um, how the Indigenous Australians were treated? Well, I think um, from a footballing context, I think they were sort of taught how to. They were obviously the settlers sort of felt that the way they went about the game was the most appropriate and the gentlemanly sort of approach to it. So the way they were sort of taught to behave, I think, and taught to play the game, in quotation marks there, mm. play the game, I think is, was sort of interesting, that sort of, almost sort of assimilation of ideals. Mm. I guess, um, just while I think of that, Nick, is there anything that you wanted to convey that um, otherwise that was particularly important to you throughout the, the chapters of the thesis? Um. I think probably the one of the overarching sort of ideas of the whole thesis was um, understanding and exploring how, or exploring what these sort of um, community organisations meant to the community, and that they really are a point of point uh, a hub in the community that sort of disseminate and um, spread cultural values. So I think uh, back then, obviously, ideas of masculinity and stuff were highly prevalent within the culture of the club, and they were a reflection of what was going on at a community level as well. And mm. I think I still think that sort of exists today as well. So I think football clubs or sport clubs or community groups in general uh, provide a space where um, cultural patterns can be highlighted and um, either celebrated or advocated and disseminated throughout the public. Mm. So I think in that sense, community groups yeah, are really are really vital in sort of communicating patterns of change and yeah, cultural change within, within communities at local, rural, regional, state, national levels. So that's probably one of the main messages I want to sort of get across. Yeah, okay. So that's one of the big takeaways. Um, Justine, is there anything that else that sprung to mind there? Yeah, I was just going to say that sounds pretty spot on. I think even if you look now um, with the messages that the country leagues or the AFL try to get across with with the promotions that they run, um, yeah, Pride Round, Indigenous Round, etc., there's a lot of, um, you know, promotion going on to try and uh, better the, the community and the, the broader public to have a greater understanding for different people and different cultures and different backgrounds. So it's, it's interesting that that's obviously followed through from from the early days and, and continues now and uh yeah which is is good to see yeah yeah, no, yeah i agree completely well nick thank you so much uh no you're welcome i really enjoyed reading your thesis i congratulate we congratulate you on it um it's obviously something that takes a lot of effort uh and time and care and uh yeah i, I you've told me you're gonna uh with the power again in uh, 2021 hopefully we get the season going and yeah, um, yeah we look forward to um, watching you out there on the field again yeah no, I really appreciate your time and um, yeah hopefully at some point obviously at the moment the thesis is in a fairly um, 
very dense read, from, as, as you might have experienced. So the plan will be at some point to sort of um, turn it into something a bit more um, accessible, I suppose, and more, more readable at some point down the track. But that's that's a future future mix um, problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so great. We'll see where that goes. 